Hey, this is Jason from Slapdash, and this episode is sponsored by 606 Iron, located in the Big M Plaza in Whitley City, Kentucky. 606 Iron has cardio equipment, free weights, numerous weight training machines, weekly kettlebell classes, and tanning beds. Stop by 606 Iron for membership information or call 606 310 4918. History of science and everything else. They slap down a new topic and dash off to the next. It's a great big world with so much to know, like cryptids, time travel, and the history of Poe. If you want to be a smarty, better learn something fast with Shannon and Jason on Slapdash Podcast. On today's episode, we are going to discuss the art of practice. Across from me is a man of many talents, one of which is typing. Shannon Deaton, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Shannon, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your typing abilities because <laughs> this is, they're, they're world-renowned is what they are. Are they? Yep. And specifically dealing with one of your first jobs, as I think it serves as a great example of the importance of practice, which is our topic for today. All right. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about it. I can type. You, you sure can. The fastest fingers in the I West. I don't know. I don't know. I can do somewhere between 120, 150 words a minute. Uh, I, I don't know what normal benchmarks are. That's pretty good. If that's okay. Um, but yeah, one of my very first jobs out of college was working at a data entry place. And basically, I would sit around all day. I'd have a headset on. I'd listen to some great podcasts. And if Slapdash was around, I'd be, I'd That'd be, have been number one on I'd your be list, learning right? some things with Shannon and Jason <laughs> right. if I could. But uh, no, yeah, we, um, we would type all day and basically i'd have something on the screen that the computer would try to read it first i know we had an episode last week about ai and that's basically what this is it would sort of try to read a document maybe somebody <laughs> sent something into sprint or, or something right. or, or some uh, telephone company and it would do the best it could but the parts that it couldn't read would automatically come to us you know and that we were just kind of seated at a, a huge uh, length of desk and there was probably about 10 of us and it would pop up on the screen and it would say okay what does this word say and i'd say oh that looks like the word the okay. <laughs> and i would literally type that in it might have like a smudge on it or something that prevented um the the ocr i think it was called from actually reading hmm. reading what was on there uh but yeah and and then it would ask sentences okay type this paragraph up for me It'd be like a, a customer complaint that had been transcribed from a phone call again ai Okay. You know, but it wouldn't be perfect. It would kind of be in broken English or in some cases it would be sort of gibberish. And I had to kind of read between the lines to really figure out, okay, what did it mean by the anteater wasn't working well today? Right. (laughs) You know, so I had to try to figure that out based on context. Uh, And then I would just type that up. But basically we were paid something called a piece rate. And that piece rate meant, you know, however many pieces I could complete that day, my pay wage would be somehow calculated as part of that. So, you know, if I wanted to make $7 an hour, $8 an hour, $15 an hour, I would have to produce so many different uh, pieces of, of documents. I'd have to type those up. So needless to say, I got a lot of practice when I was doing that, I would spend eight to 10 hours a day typing. And um, all through college, of course, you know, uh, we had to type a lot of papers. I I think actually learned how to type around fourth grade is when that really started up. Yeah. Uh, We had a teacher who would cover our hands with felt 
she she had on the keyboards a piece of felt and we would put our hands on the keyboard and then she would cover them up so that we couldn't look and then we would go through exercises and drills and we probably do that an hour a day that five is days real, a week that's really cool yeah yeah it's it was fun but it it led me to believe in the importance of practice which i think is the topic well, of today's I, episode I, I agree with you so practice is defined as quote to perform an activity or skill repeatedly or regularly in order to improve or maintain one's proficiency and shannon we have some great examples of people putting in practice time to get better at whatever it is that they're in love with it's right? an art it's, yeah you just develop the art and over time you get better and better and better absolutely but first we're going to uh, talk a little about something called the ten thousand hour rule. Have you ever heard of this? I have, just a little bit. Yeah. The 10,000 hour rule was first introduced by Professor Anders Ericsson, who studied uh, expert performance in medicine, music, chess, and sports, focusing on extended deliberate practice. Author Daniel Coyle also explored Erickson's idea in the book, The Talent Code, uh, Greatness is Not Born, It's Grown. And there's a really cool example uh, uh, in this book where he talks about the uh, Spartak Tennis Club. I don't know if you've ever heard no, of that. I don't, I don't know that one. Uh, it's just outside of Moscow. Okay. Oh, really? So, okay. yeah. So, uh, in Russia, very, very cold climate. Play a lot of tennis there? That, they, they play a lot of tennis there. You know, one might imagine if this is a, a world renowned tennis type of an area, right? That, uh, you know, you have these massive facilities and, and all that. And that's really just not the case at all. Uh, it's basically two courts. Okay. Two tennis courts in a cold, old kind of a building but the uh, the gentleman that runs that uh, that facility has produced more like world ranked female tennis players than in any other place on the planet oh really and it's like it's a really cold place it's in the middle of nowhere and so that goes to show a lot about practice that he he how he runs his practices are very different than a lot of other tennis coaches and so the odds that there would be that many world-renowned female tennis players in one small town the odds are just astronomical that that would just be due to chance, right? right. So something's yeah. going on there. So that tells you it's not necessarily just biological. Like these people in this area aren't just prone to be tennis players. Something right. is happening yeah. related to the practice. That's right. Okay. And so practice is the key. So uh, we have several individuals that we're going to take a look at here. The first one we will look at is probably the most well-known, obviously one of the most well-known athletes, uh, and maybe maybe the most well-known that we'll dis- uh, discuss today. And it's a basketball player by the name of Michael Jordan. Michael who? <laughs> yeah, Michael Jordan. Jordan would practice five to six hours each day of the week in high school and college before exploding onto the scene in the NBA. That's phenomenal when you think about that. Five to six hours while carrying a high school and or college course load. That that means like every hour that he'd available, basically. That's pretty much. And so I did a little bit of math on this. So I'll meet Michael in the middle. He said five to six hours a day. So I'm going to go five and a half hours. All right. So five and a half hours per day. That is 38.5 hours per week. So basically a full-time, full-time job. job. Yeah. That is 154 hours per month. Okay. That is 1,386 hours in nine months. All right. And in six years, that is 8,316 hours. Now, the reason I said nine months and not 12 was because that the season actually goes on for about three months. 
right? Oh, the basketball right. He's actually season. playing. Right. Yeah. So he's so, still practicing, but not sort of the same. He's probably not practicing five to six hours a day because some of that's he's, <laughs> he's traveling playing, and yeah. playing and those type of things. Right. So, but even just with the five and a half hours a day for nine months, that brings him to over 8,300 hours in six years so by the time you actually do add in the games and so forth you know he would have easily hit the ten thousand hour mark sure and it's just kind of interesting because six years is sort of that year is the year that he just kind of blew up in college and he became the third overall you know uh, pick in the nba draft and then was nba rookie of the year and just and just went off and another thing that's interesting and you've probably heard of this uh, before that i want to say that it was in his 10th grade year it's either ninth grade or 10th grade michael jordan did not meet or did not make his high school basketball team. Oh, yeah, I've heard that story. Yeah, he yeah. was not picked for his high school basketball team, Michael Jordan. So there were like 12 other people in a town that's <laughs> yeah. better than Michael Jordan, like in ninth and 10th grade. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. and so he just uh, consistently kept kept at it, kept practicing, kept practicing. And, of course, it's not just the number of hours. Those are important, but it's not just that. It's actually the intensity of practice or right. kind of this uh, concept of a deep practice, what – which uh, Daniel Coyle yeah. uh, talks about. And there is a, recently a, a several-part documentary on, on ESPN ab- about the, the Jordan years and, and the Chicago Bulls. I've been wanting to see that. That's, that's supposed to be really good, but I can't find a place to watch it. Oh, really? It's, it's on ESPN. Is it on ESPN? I, I recorded them. I, I've, I actually have them all recorded, but I've only watched about half of them. All right. Uh, yeah. And, of course, you know, anybody in the NBA at that time would tell you that Michael Jordan was the, like he was the first to practice. He was the last to leave. He was the hardest worker. The practices were so intense, not that this makes it a good thing, but the practices were so intense that Jordan physically got into fights with his own teammates. That they were on two different occasions with two players. He literally punched him in the face. Oh, I haven't heard that. Because they weren't living up to his expectations. Oh, no. Not that what He's they not even the coach. Done. He, he's not just officially. out there. He's a player, but <laughs> yeah, he has some stakes in, yeah. in the team. Yeah. And and all the players will say that you know that they they were scared of him because I mean he meant business and wow. uh, you know and then even on maybe the most famous basketball team ever the uh, the ninety two dream team you know that the Olympic team that was in Barcelona everyone says that probably the best game that no one ever watched was the scrimmage the first scrimmage of the dream team where I think Magic Johnson was on one end, Michael Jordan was on oh the other. Oh, my gosh, man. And to they go said, back in time and see that. Yeah, and they said that you know, it would go 8, 10, 12 possessions sometimes where people, nobody missed a shot, no matter where it was taken from. And it was played at such an unbelievably high level. And even even on a team that I don't think anybody even got within 30 of them during the whole the whole Olympics, they <laughs> just destroyed. Can you imagine the other teams watching that scrimmage if they were allowed to? Just like, <laughs> we're in, oh, my God. We're, <laughs> we, what will we do? <laughs> we need some AI. <laughs> yeah, we and, – uh, and I – I don't mean we, Alan Iverson. I mean artificial yeah, intelligence. Or the Monstars to show up or something from yeah. Space Jam. <laughs> they may have a chance of that. But even in those practices that, I mean, obviously it's the Olympics, but it was almost like a rock star mentality where, I mean, it was just a foregone conclusion. The Americans were just going to destroy everybody in, in, in the Olympics of basketball. And they did. I mean, nobody got even close. But even though they were that good and they knew basically they were going to just destroy everyone, he was still so competitive in practices that it got heated. I mean, these wow. were, these were all future Hall of Fame basketball players, and and even then he was still he was at such a high level intensely practicing. Wow. Yeah, so that's incredible, Michael Jordan. So who do you got? Well, this person that I have is probably not as well known uh, globally, but he's well known in the circle that he resides in and, sure. and lives in. Uh, his name is Felix Zimdex, and Jason he is a world renowned Rubik's cube solver. Did you know this was a thing? 
I did know what to think, and I bet he can solve it faster than 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 uh, than I can. I think the <laughs> I think the fastest time I've ever had has been uh, nope, never have solved it, N- never done. <laughs> nope. So I'm sure he'll beat me. Well, I, I actually bought a Rubik's cube uh, a few years ago and and tried to set out on a journey to solve it just solve it you know right. just in general and i think the first time i ever did so it took like 35 minutes to, oh, to figure really? it out yeah so i went on and i bought uh what's called a speed cube because apparently the actual rubik rubik's cube brand it, it's kind of crunchy like it's not made for speed like you really have to physically turn it to get it to move do yeah you, do you remember that yeah i do yeah uh, but yeah. speed cubes are made to it's sort stiff. of it's sort of st- the, the original sort of it's stiff. very stiff yeah. it's rigid it, it's, it's hard to move but the speed cubes they actually move much quicker you know and uh Felix Zimdegs is uh, one of the best when it comes to solving. And I'll, I'll give you some of his numbers here in just a moment. But he is an Australian Rubik's Cube speed solver. He's the only speed cuber to ever win the World Cube Association's World Championship twice. So he's the only person to ever do that. Uh, he's 24 years old, which makes this even more incredible because he was wow. a prodigy when it came to this particular field uh and he actually shares a birthday with my youngest daughter which is december 20th so well there you go bless him for that <laughs> he actually uh he started solving the three by three cube which is the most popular it's probably the one you think of when you think of rubik's cube it's sure. just the, the three by three by three uh when he was 12 years old so he's he's only been at it for 12 years and i say only been at it but in in the grand scheme of things Talking about Michael Jordan, he had a multiple decade career, as will others who are on this list. So the fact that Felix was able to accomplish what he did with uh, just starting out at 12 is is really remarkable, you know. So uh, he purchased his first speed cube uh, around 2008, and he was inspired by some video tutorials that he watched on YouTube. So, again, a fairly recent sensation here. Some of these we're going to talk about are are much older, but Felix is still out there, and he's still crunching those cubes. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, one year after he learned how to solve the cube, he won the 3x3 event at the first competition he attended in New Zealand with an average solve time of... 13.7 seconds in the final round so if you can imagine a rubik's cube just completely jumbled up and one year after you first start learning how to solve it you can solve it in about in average time about 13 seconds oh my unbelievable gosh that's crazy yeah also that year uh he won the two by two competition the four by four the five by five the three by three blindfolded and the three by three one-handed competition (laughs) (laughs) so uh he, he knows how to spin a Rubik's Cube. I usually like look at it for like the first five minutes like like a caveman. <laughs> probably, you know, probably how a caveman would look at like maybe an airplane. Right. That's sort of the look that I how give the Rubik's work? Cube. Yeah. What, what does this do? What is this crazy <laughs> yeah. thing? Uh, but Zimdex currently holds the world record for the fastest 3 by 3 cube solve. And remember I told you his average was 13 seconds in his first competition. The fastest that one has ever been solved is 4.22 seconds four seconds the amount of time that i've said four seconds <laughs> is about four seconds he he had to have gotten a really good scramble. combination or whatever it's yeah. called scr- yeah had to have i mean ha- had to. He, he's spoken to this i've watched him on youtube and he said there were several lucky breaks there's times in the middle of the solve where things could go one of two ways and he just kept coming up lucky every time and i think there's something like four trillion different combinations <laughs> so it's nothing he can plan for right. it's not like you know it's the odds are far worse than like winning the lottery even right it's it's just you get what you get and it's completely random and he just 
seemed to be really lucky that day. And that day was uh, an event called Cube for Cambodia, which was May of 2018. Now, in terms of practice, uh, Felix was able to uh, solve the cube in less than 20 seconds within the first four months of practice, in less than 15 seconds, in nine months, and reached a sub-10 second average within one year of beginning to practice. Now, he did an interview with Red Bull uh, a couple of years ago, and he mentioned that he has practiced one hour a day for the past 12 years, which means he has accumulated approximately 4,380 hours of intentional focused practice, and at least double that if you count the number of competition solves he's performed. So talking about that 10,000 rule, and you know, he's, he's worked on it over 12 years, uh, but he's only about halfway there in, in terms of the actual solves because he's one of these guys that whenever I read about him and there's several, uh, a couple others I have on this list that sort of um, are against the norm in a way because they don't practice as much as you would think they needed to right. in order to perform at that level. And yet they're the best in the world. So it's interesting to, to think about the 10,000 hour rule. And, right. you know, obviously that's uh, it's a case of like nature versus nurture. Sure. Like how much of this is people are innately born with an ability to do a skill and how much of it is nurtured through hours and hours and hours of practice. Right. So sometimes you just have these oddball sort of people who are just born with the ability to turn a Rubik's cube at a right. million I mean, miles an hour. That takes certain dexterity. That's it does. Yeah. So that's, I don't know. That's, that's an interesting point. Yeah. So Jason, who's up next on our list? Our next person obsessed with practice uh, is Anthony Gatto. Uh, Gatto is an American juggler who holds nine juggling world records, including uh, six clubs, or I think what we call really like, like bowling pins, right? Oh, okay. I think they're called clubs, clubs. But, yeah. but pins. So he, he juggled six uh, pins for seven minutes and 38 seconds. Oh, wow. Uh, that's just one of the nine records. Uh, Gatto was on the Ellen DeGeneres show, uh, the Jay Leno show, the Tonight Show, performed in Cirque du Soleil, and had his own show in Las Vegas for a number of years. Okay. Yeah. So, so he's a juggling machine. He's huh? a juggling machine, yeah. And so sort of like the uh, the uh, gentleman you were talking about there with the Rubik's Cube. Oh, yeah, Felix. Uh, he, he does practice, but it's not like five or six hours a day, but he practices every day. That's key, too. Consistency. Right. Yeah. And so the odd thing about Gatto is that he only practices for about an hour and a half each day. So generally one to two hours, although he has been practicing or he's, he started practicing at about the age of eight. Okay. Uh, and so basically what he did is that he just really got into that. And he had about a roughly 12 to 15 year career being a juggler was, was awesome at it. Still does it on occasion, but has sort of officially retired from like that's his main gig. Right. Okay. And, and so, so, so what do you retire so, into it, after being the all time juggling well, champion it, of six pins? It whatever. makes common sense that uh, he has a concrete company in Orlando, Florida. Well, of course he does. And that's what he does now. <laughs> uh, but you can still book him for uh, events. So he still does that, but he, he just doesn't, he just doesn't do it full time any longer. Oh, man. I wonder if he has any concrete casts of things he, he juggles on occasion, you know, just to impress people. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Just like, hey, come over here for, and then just kind of routinely starts doing it, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, so, so Anthony Gatto, uh, big time juggler. So, who do you have next? Next up, I have Magnus Carlson. And okay. Jason Magnus Carlson is a Norwegian chess grandmaster who is the current world chess champion, world rapid chess champion, and world blitz chess champion. Have you ever heard that name before, Magnus Carlson? 
I don't think so. It's one of those names that kind of commands respect. Though. Right, Magnus. Yeah. This, this is old Mr. Carlson. I mean, uh, Magnus Carlson. <laughs> he first reached the top of the FIDE World Rankings, which is the international organization that sort of governs chess competitions, in 2010 and trails only Gary Kasparov in time spent as the highest rated player in the world. His peak classical rating of 2882 is the highest in history. And I went and looked at the actual ratings and he's at the top and I think the the person right below him is like 50 to 100 points lower and it just goes on and on you know for like the top ranked 100 or so different chess champions. He was a chess prodigy and at the age of 13 he achieved second place in the World Youth Chess Championship in 2002. He surpassed a rating of 2800 at the age of 18 and reached number one in the FIDE world rankings at age 19 becoming the youngest person ever to achieve those feats. So the guy's pretty good at chess apparently. He can play it quick. You know, he's, he's king of the, the rapid chess. He's uh, king of the world blitz, which I like to imagine is some chess football hybrid. <laughs> it seems very just <laughs> profound somehow, right? It does, yeah. So you, you can imagine that he, he must put in a lot of practice, right, in order to get to perform at this level. And it's been said that when Magnus is preparing for a tournament, he can spend up to seven or eight hours a day playing chess. So you talked about Michael Jordan playing basketball for six hours. Man, can you imagine sitting down and just steady playing chess for, for eight hours a day? Sometimes the only opponent he could find who was up to his level was himself. So he yeah. would sit down and he would play both sides like back and forth, of the table, right. back and forth. And that's, to me, that, that seems very hard to do. You know, I, I like chess. I've played chess, but I've never been able to get into the mindset that I could play myself because I always know what I'm thinking. <laughs> right. I'll, I'll show my other self right here. Corner this guy. Right. Hopefully he doesn't notice I'm thinking about this. And then on the other side of the table, it's oh, like, he did oh, remember. Oh, no. <laughs> he figured me out. Um, but yeah, dur- during this time that Magnus is practicing, he doesn't go out. He doesn't party. He doesn't socialize. He avoids travel. He considers all of that to be a complete waste of time and energy. And he just spends seven to eight hours a day steady playing chess. <laughs> so one source when talking about Magnus said, quote, it's not about the hours you put in training. Hundreds of grandmaster chess players put the same, if not more, hours than Carlson does, and he makes them look like kids playing their first games. It's all about the intangibles, the things that can't be explained, end quote. And this is the hmm. other one I was talking about that kind of gives me pause a little bit, but I would say he does value practice. I mean, come on. Oh, Seven yeah. or eight hours a day, that's not just a little bit. I think that's, uh, that's pretty, significant. Pretty, pretty pretty committed there. Yeah, he, he he's into it. In a 2018 study by Chang and Lane, it was found that spending time studying chess uh, and playing chess is necessary, but not sufficient for achieving a very high level of chess performance. This is another one of those sort of contrary things hmm. that makes you think, all right, is it nature? Or is it nurture? Are some people born to move the rook to a certain square and and be able to do that uh, more fruitfully than others? But there were too many studies that were conducted. And in the first, there was a young expert chess player who they followed around. And it was found that she spent very little time studying uh, chess or engaging in other chess-related experiences. But nonetheless, she achieved an exceptional chess level. So she was one of these rare exceptions to the rule. And in the second study, 77 adult chess players were followed, and it was found that although time spent engaging in chess-related activities and playing chess correlated to high skill levels, intelligence had a much stronger correlation to skill and overall chess rating. So Hmm, even more than the practice itself, how intelligent and how smart you were 
played more into your ranking than than even those things. So I don't know. It's I, I wow. think you can't go wrong by practicing. Certainly, wow. it can only help. Right. It can only make you better. Uh, I think too there are some intangibles apparently you know that go into it, whether it be cognitive or biological, that just makes some people stronger, faster, smarter in certain areas, you know, and in certain skill sets. But Jason, before we get into the next one, you want to take a quick break? Yeah, sounds great. Hey everyone, we're happy to announce that the podcast now has a merchandise store. Shannon, everyone loves hoodies and everyone loves coffee. Yeah, and you can pick up a nice slapdash hoodie or a slapdash mug and drink your next cup of joe right out of a slapdash cup. (laughs) We also have t-shirts and stickers. Yeah, we do. So come on by and log on to www.slapdashpod.com forward slash store. That's www.slapdashpod.com forward slash store. Okay, uh, today's topic, we are continuing our discussion about the importance of practice. And another example of a very successful person uh, due to spending countless hours of practice is Bill Gates. Now, this may be the most uh, worldwide famous person that we've talked about here today. Oh, sure. In Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, I think you've read that, right, I love Shannon? It. Yeah, yeah. I, I love Malcolm Gladwell. So in Gladwell's book, he discusses that as a young child, Gates had access to a high school in 1960 or a high school computer in 1968 and spent thousands and thousands of hours programming on it. And not just your average kid in 1968 had access to a computer. Not everybody. No, no. And in, in the book outliers, uh, Gladwell mentions several people that met the 10,000 hour rule that we had talked about earlier. Uh, that, that, that topic is mentioned several times throughout sure. the book. Yeah. Uh, another group that he mentions, uh, are the Beatles which I thought was kind of interesting. Oh, that, yeah, that's a cool parallel. Yeah, and so he talks about... So uh, a lot of practice there, or... Yeah, so he talks about uh, that the uh, Beatles, I, f- I forgot, played, like I want to say 1,200 times in Hamburg, Germany, okay. before they ever really made it big in England, which I really never knew that. And so Man. he talked about all the hours of, of the events and the practice. and You'd have to play like four gigs a day to do oh, that in a year it's it's wild yeah i mean yeah. He, they played non-stop and played like at nightclubs and festivals and they said it literally just played non-stop over a course of years before they kind of really made it big so okay so maybe over several years they did the 1200 right. yeah okay yeah, yeah. and uh so gladwell keeps you know uh, emphasizing this this uh, 10,000 hour rule uh but one of the best examples is bill gates and so in, in an interview gates just basically says i literally would just sit on this computer and tinker with it for just hours and hours and hours probably just a bored kid yeah uh paid off for him sure right i mean i think uh he's, I think, he's done some things i think microsoft has probably made a nickel or two they they appreciate him <laughs> yeah i would imagine <laughs> So Gates, you know, in in the interview, you know, they they had discussed this ten thousand hour rule with him, and yeah. uh, he was a, a proponent of it. He said, "Yeah," he said, "I certainly think all of the countless hours I spent uh, programming this computer at, at a young age in the '60s obviously kind of laid the groundwork and helped to kind of shape my understanding uh, of things to come, sure, and maybe yeah. you know what questions to ask and and how to go about solving things, right? And so that's that's another example. Yeah, oh, that's a good one. So, Jason, I think our last example here is a violinist named Jaska Heifetz. Any have you ever heard that name before? Good name. Yeah. Oh, it's it's a wonderful yeah. name. 
<laughs> so Jaska Heifetz was a Russian-American violinist, and many, many consider him to be the greatest violinist of all time, second only to Jason Creekmore. I've, I've heard your concertos, man. Wonderful. Just just beautiful stuff. It's pretty good. The people, work. the people on Williamsburg Street just lined up at the road, and they just I just bring tears to their eyes. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And then they throw rocks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Jaska Heifetz was born on February 2nd, 1901, and passed away on December 10th, 1987, at age 86. Uh, but at the age of four, Jaska started violin lessons, and he was a child prodigy. You've heard that word a lot yep. on this particular episode, making his public debut at age seven. He practiced for about three years, learned the violin, and then went straight into performing. So, yeah, pretty talented guy. Uh, here are a few quotes that I thought were wonderful and, and go such a long way toward describing how good this guy actually was. Some of these are from his contemporaries, the people who were around at the time and maybe even competitors in some way, but they respected him. Fritz Chrysler, another leading violinist of the 20th century, said after he heard Heifetz's debut, quote, we might as well take our fiddles and break them across our knees, end quote. <laughs> So they, they kind of gave up. That's pretty blunt to the point. Yeah, uh, that, that'd be like uh, some of the folks on the, the Dream Team saying, you know what, let's just break our knees because <laughs> we're done. Michael Jordan, man. <laughs> yeah, we're not beating this pretty guy. pretty good. Yeah. George Bernard uh, Bernard Shaw wrote to High Fetz after his London debut at age 19, and this is probably my favorite quote ever. This is what George Bernard Shaw said in a letter <laughs> to High Fetz, quote, if you provoke a jealous God by playing with such superhuman perfection, you will die young. I earnestly advise you to play something badly every night before going to bed instead of saying your prayers. No mortal should presume to play so faultlessly. End quote. <laughs> have, have you oh ever met one gosh. of your heroes and wrote a letter like that? Like, man, that was tremendous. And you, you know, no mortal should aspire to be that good. So just to make sure you don't get struck down where you stand, you need to try to do poorly next time. You just, you just time. need to stink it up every once in a while, right? <laughs> yeah. So when Jaska performed at Carnegie Hall in 1917, Misha Elman, uh, who was a piano player, uh, was in the audience and he asked, do you think it's hot? in here and the piano sitting uh, pianist sitting next to him replied uh not for a pianist <laughs> so i think he was just imagining all these violinists sitting there and thinking about breaking their violins right. because man this guy he's just so wow. good and you might wonder well how many hours does a person like this spend practicing because that's what we're talking about the art right. of practice and how much did it add to any innate talent or ability he might have had well according to sources high fetz practice for an hour or so each morning and for an hour or so each evening from the time he was four years old to the time he was 70 years old, which is when he stopped playing due to a shoulder injury. I think mm. he, he lost the ability. And I did some calculations there to figure out exactly, well, how many hours did he get in within that amount of time? And it comes to about 48,910 hours of practice throughout his lifetime, not including actual performances. So if we want to say the 10,000 hour rule makes oh you a God. master, I would argue this guy is the grand master of masters. Oh, yeah. I mean, almost 50,000 hours. That's a lot of time spent playing the violin. And in fact, if you 
sort of distill that down, that's five solid years of practice. Jason, that would be like if I stopped this podcast right now and we sat around and solved a Rubik's Cube or tossed a football for five years straight, nonstop. Around the clock. Around the clock, 24 hours, seven days a week, five solid years is the amount of time this man put into practicing the the fiddle, as we call it here in Kentucky. (laughs) Wow. So that's incredible. And man, practice is a big deal. And folks say practice makes perfect. Have you heard the phrase uh, that perfect practice makes perfect? I have. So I think it's the idea that not just any old practice is going to make you good. It has to be intentional. It has to be focused. And whatever form that you need to to have, like if you're solving a Rubik's Cube, having your fingers in a certain position, or if you're playing basketball, holding the ball in a certain way, shooting in a certain way, that sort of practice is what's going to really make you stand out from the rest of the competition. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting conversation about practice. Is there is there anything you would add to this before we get ready to close out? I guess we would just tell all the uh, athletes and musicians and and what have you jugglers and jugglers and that when they're uh, starting to uh, I guess develop their practice plans and so forth and coaches and those yeah. types of things, uh, just kind of be really aware of time. It's not sure. it's not just the time. You know, obviously the time has to occur, but it's what's going on. That's right. During that time, just so, being really focused, yep. and getting that deep practice in. That Absolutely. You were talking about. Yeah. Well, thanks to all of our listeners who are joining us each week. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. And uh, if you enjoy the podcast, also consider sharing us with a friend. That's one of the best ways for the show to grow. And we certainly appreciate that. Also consider following us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle at SlapdashPot. We release new episodes on Mondays and Thursdays in history, art, science, and everything else. Go practice, and we'll catch you in the next episode. I'm going to go play a fiddle. Let's do it. 